Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mundus. Because he has a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. Woohoo! Monday, May 7th, 2012, and welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am Matthew Zachary, a 16-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And I'm Lisa Bernhard, 16-year young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It's not okay. Not okay. 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucked, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show is all about life after treatment, and we've got some great guests joining us. Barbara Golby, she is a clinical social worker and part of Memorial Sloan Kettering's Cancer Center, and Penny Damascus joins her. She's director of the Resources for Life After Cancer Center at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and kicking it off in the Survivor Spotlight, a good friend of the Stupid Cancer Show, Emily Cousins, young adult breast cancer survivor, and a contributor to our Stupid Cancer blog. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of the, uh, I almost said I'm here with this, of Stupid Cancer, formerly the Amity Young for this Cancer Foundation, online at stupidcancer.org. We are not your father's cancer society, no, we're not. but we are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight where it belongs. Yes, we are. So welcome aboard. Another fun and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure and survivorship is all that matters. And a stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we broadcast live from the chemo deck, our fabulous, beautiful, lovely, slightly toasty studio <laughs> in, in downtown Manhattan. As a final reminder before we start the show, the Stupid Cancer Show has a live interactive chat room during each and every broadcast. We invite you to join in the fun and connect with our friends and ask questions of our guests. And with that, our self-ingratiating round of applause. Yeah, yes. Hooray for us. <laughs> Matthew's taking a bow. Hello, Kenny Kane. What's going on? How you doing, Jen? Hey, I, I was worried about you. Hello, Lisa. I was worried about you when you forgot the name of the organization for about uh, five seconds over there. Uh, yes. I know. Yes, that... that Put me on edge as well. That, that did happen. I, everything went through my mind from <laughs> uh, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we're here to welcome back 
Dr. James Manning in the studio. Hello, James. How are you, Matt? How Hi, was James. your vacation? It was okay. Um, loved the summit, but um, glad to be back in New York. You uh, had, had a good time in Vegas? It was interesting. I'm not a gambler, and I'm not fond of cigarette smoke, so, <laughs> you know, I did the best I could. Well, let's assume you were a gambler and smoked. And Would you, you have had a good time? Absolutely. Okay, good. You are a captain of industry, smoking <laughs> cigars. <laughs> A cigar, maybe, but not often. I'm just. Well, not we're still smoker. talking about the summit, or was James in Las Vegas on his own that I don't know about, <laughs> wandering around? James stayed in Vegas. Because, you know. What he, happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Remember flight. that, Matt? James met three strippers, and he stayed in Vegas. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. Good for James. You pass by everything in the hotel lobby. Yeah. You yep. really do. It's good stuff. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Dr. Matt Beckett. Uh, our uh, intern for the summer. Hello, Dr. Matt. Hi. Right up, to the, right up to the, uh, the mic there, Matt. Matt's on-air debut. Yeah. Hi, Matt. It's How your on-air debut. Yes, we have uh, we have uh, double, Dr. James and Dr. Matt. Double the Matt. Double, double, the, double yeah. the fun. Double the Matt. Exactly. They were both raising the roof before the show. They well, were we were down. listening to CeeLo. Yeah. It was quite so, frightening. Yes, yeah, very frightening. Out. We are way too white. You <laughs> <laughs> got away with that stuff. It was sufficiently awkward. Yes. I would agree with what Kenny just said, sort of. So, uh, anyways, how are we doing? What's going on? We're doing great, but big sad news this week in the, ca- in the uh, pop culture, yep, cancer community. MCA, Adam Yauch, Beastie no Boys. How old was he? Like Forty-seven. Mid forties, right? Yeah, diagnosed with cancer in his salivary gland in two thousand nine, I believe. Right. Tribute to Adam. Brought the good fight. Really tragic. Yep. Salivary gland, huh? Songs of my youth. Yes. Your your youth, not my, my youth. youth. Speak for yourself. Song? My youth. Seventies lady. Songs of the countdown shows 70s. of my youth. No. Countdown shows. Best of the last decade before you. I'm Casey Kasem. Grew up with the BCs. Great fan. Yeah. I remember this is how far back I remember. I remember when they opened for Madonna. I think it might have been their first tour. We're talking like 84, 85? Oh, yeah, we're talking mid-80s. 03, but... 02, 19th <laughs> yeah. century, 03, 02. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The electric amp was just invented. They always stayed cool. They never lost their sense of humor. They were so New York, Yeah. obviously, as we play No I, Sleep for Brooklyn. I read an article in which they said that they had to explain in like one of their real early shows that they were actually good people right. to the parents of the kids coming to see them. Like they're like, who are these Beastie Boys? Right. And they went out front and they were talking to the parents before the show. Right. You know, they changed a lot of their lyrics over the years, though. If anybody can hear us over there, uh, over there rapping, but um, they changed a lot of the, their lyrics from when they were the young, rambunctious lads that they were when they first started out in the mid '80s, early '80s, and they became very socially conscious and socially aware and really spoke out for women's rights and gay rights and intergalactic rights intergalactic, intergalactic rights, rights. Right. <laughs> intergalactic planet um and uh Adam Yauch also was um had a, an organization to free Tibet and his I believe his wife is Tibetan and really? uh, yes and he's a uh Buddhist they're just like three nice Jewish boys from Long Island right from Brooklyn Bro- from well well that would make a lot of Long- sense. no didn't they move to Brooklyn or were they originally from Long Island We'd have to. I'd have to look that up, Matthew. Yeah. I don't, to the, to the Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> no sleep till Wikipedia. Right. Exactly. Anyway, very sad. I was. I cried for like three days. I was really emotional about it. Really? Yes. Yes. Really. It hit me hard. This one hit me hard. All right. So who else would have to die for you to cry as equally sentimental? That's like me and MJ. Let's not. Let's not kill anybody. I don't want to kill anybody off tonight. Bob Hope. He's dead already. 
Yeah. Did you cry? No. Dick Clark? No. Um, Gary I mean, Co- not that it's one. Don't make me sound like a cool, heartless person <laughs> now. I have to sing a lot of people that right. I didn't cry for. Gary Coleman. <laughs> Lisa, Lisa <laughs> reads the obituary. Let's, 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 let's not play this game Einstein, anymore. Einstein. <laughs> Plato. Socrates. <laughs> Oh, come on now. Let's just go back even further. Anyway. I, I cry when I read Fifty Shades of Grey. All right, yeah. how about Abel? <laughs> Abel. <laughs> you know, Kane kind of done yes. him in. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm with you. But I'm Tish. Let's move on with the show, shall we? Uh, but Emily, yeah, Emily's called in. Okay, well, here we go. Let's get to uh, our Survivor let's Spotlight. Do this one. Nice one. The one and only returning champion to the stupid cancer show, Emily Cousins, is a writer and editor who was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was 32 and uh, nine months pregnant with her first child. Not that this is a good time to get cancer. She's currently writing a book, actually I think she wrote the book, about what it's like for young survivors once cancer treatment is over, when the radiation birds have healed and the hair has started to come back. But everything else is still completely out of whack. Almost uh, a decade Living in New York City, she now resides in North Arizona with her husband, son, and the daughter she was lucky to have post-chemo. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, the one and only Emily Cousins. Emily. Hi, Emily. Hello. Hi there. You have such an outdated bio for her. I know. Uh, I live she, in Seattle She now, now resides in the rainy countryside I know. of Seattle. Well, this is what happens when people don't send me their bios when Uh-oh. I request them. Uh-oh. Yes. No to self. Send new bio. Yes. She's now in Seattle. I am. And As it's I even read it, I'm like, this is really old. Yeah, that's not yeah. good. And now we just have some dead air. So we need to... Cricket, cricket, cricket. So you're in Seattle. I'm in Seattle. And yes. tell, So we saw you out at the Great Summit. We, you and I did a, a writing uh, workshop together that I moderated that you were on and were brilliant on our panel, Emily. Thank you. It was great. It was great to be there. It was an amazing conference. It was, it was fantastic. Even with the cigarette smoke and the gambling. Even with the cigarette smoke and the Playboy Club and all that, it was fabulous. Oh, come on. The Playboy Club was awesome. There was no smoking in there. <laughs> That's true. Great view, too. We were pretty. Our event was pretty smoke-free, we should add. Well, the thing yeah. is, during the day, it wasn't nearly as horrible. At night, the casino got like... like in the casino, which yeah. you had to walk through to get to the many... Right, and anything else, anywhere right. else. Right, right, exactly. But, they you know, our- it lived up to its reputation. That's what you expect in Vegas. Yes, so. that is true. Epic. 552 people. So let's let's talk about you, Emily, and how you came to us. And you're a lot of folks out there know who you are. But the quick the quick um, thumbnail story of your diagnosis when you were pregnant to the folks who are listening for the first time who would like to know all about Emily Cousins is well, I was nine months pregnant, and my midwife was doing a routine exam and said, you know, I feel a lump. I'm sure it's nothing. It's probably a milk duct. But why don't you check it out? So I went to a surgeon who said, lo and behold, you have cancer. So. Um, you know, there was none in my family. It was a complete surprise. I was 32 and um, was not at all expecting this. Uh, a week later, I had my son, and about 10 days after that, I had a lumpectomy and then started chemo and radiation. So it was not exactly how I expected to spend the first eight or nine months of my first child's life, but, you know, you, you adapt. <laughs> you just accept it. Um, in a way, sometimes I felt like I don't know how people do it without that kind of distraction. Having a baby was like the thing I could. It was a time to think about something other than cancer. Taking care of my son was in a way a relief, but um, it was definitely a hard time. And uh, you know, in the baby pictures, we're both bald. You know, <laughs> and he's just used to. My son is just used to seeing those pictures of me when I didn't have hair. 
Um, But, you know, I had about eight or nine months of treatment, and I was sprinting forward so fast I just couldn't wait to get over with it and start my new, you know, get back to normal and and be the kind of mother and wife and writer I was before I got cancer. But what I soon realized was that wasn't possible, that my life had changed so dramatically, and it took a while for me to understand how to put the pieces back together again. Um, so I found. In, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say. So you were when you were you were living. Were you living in New York at the time? I forget. I was. Yes. Okay. Um, and sorry. So you were and you were treated. Um, you were treated where? I was treated at St. Vincent's, which um, at the cancer center there, which is now I guess part of NYU or something. Right. Oh. Okay. And I had a great team, amazing team, um, who were really supportive. And, um, you know, it gave me really, I like, uh, I think maybe many young survivors, I felt like, give me everything you have because my body can take it. I want all the, the toughest treatment you can give me because I want to live a long life. And I, I felt even more so because I had this baby. So I wanted to live for him. And so I took whatever horrible, punishing treatment they could give me. And what would you, other than radiation, as you said, horrible, punishing treatment. So you had... Um you had a lumpectomy with chemo and radiation? I Chevy did. Iron I, had, um, yeah. I, I had six rounds of AC because I um, had her two, I was HER2 new positive. Um, and so they gave me extra adriamycin. Um, and that just made me feel extra sick. Right. And, you know, all the radiation. So. So did, did you, I mean, we talk a lot about fertility preservation. You already had a kid and you were currently pregnant. Uh, had they ever treated a young adult who was pregnant with breast cancer before at this clinic? No. Okay. Were you comfortable um, with that? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, you know, it was just happened so fast, you know. Right. So, and because I was pregnant, I mean, there was, you know, the doctors mentioned, oh, um, maybe we should harvest your eggs. But then they said quickly, oh, but you can't take hormones. You're already pregnant. It's not right. the right cycle. You, We can't do what we would usually do. And you can't take the hormones you would need to take in order for us to do that. Um, and in in one way, it sort of cycled. One person I went to for a second opinion said, oh, I, you should take, you know, if you're this young and you just got diagnosed, um, you should have your ovaries out, and maybe I'll do that when you have a C-section. You should take your ovaries out right then and there. I, I happily did not stay with that doctor because that was not what I needed to do, and Good. that would Good have prevented you. me from ever having children. Again, right. I did have a daughter after all this. So um, it was a strange situation. Fertil- I, I mean, on the one hand, I, I was so lucky to be pregnant and have my son, um, but fertility preservation wasn't really discussed. Where, what hospital was this again? St. Vincent. St. Vincent. Okay. And I got, you know, the got late second St. Vincent's. Memorials. Right. right. Yeah, the late St. Vincent's. So I don't remember if, um, I mean, this was only a couple of years ago. St. Vincent's, I don't think they, they had a young adult program at all back then. They did not. They didn't. Right. Um, you know, and so it was definitely that experience of routinely being the youngest one in the waiting room. Right. And, you know, I'd come in with my baby stroller half the time, and I'm sure people just thought I was, there to see my grandmother or something. Right. Um, but I did through some, find, you know, through, through New York-based resources, found um, one group for young adult uh, breast, can- you know, breast cancer survivors who are, you know, under 40. And we met a few times, and that was fantastic because, like, I can imagine everyone listening knows 
the feeling of always feeling so much younger and not really when you're in the hospital or the cancer center, you're too young. But when you're among your friends and peers, you feel too old because you're dealing with all these issues right. of mortality and illness and decisions, impossible decisions you have to make. So being around the, those women was such a relief. It was it was so useful to just share basic information like, well, what did it feel like for you? Well, what did AC do to you? You know, how, what can I expect? But also the emotional stuff. It was just such a relief to be able to talk to other survivors. So, Emily, you were nine months pregnant, so you obviously went through your treatment after you had given birth to your son. I did, right? yes. Um, my my breast surgeon said he would give me a week to ten days to see if I would go into labor. Um, it turned out I needed to have a C-section, so, you know, uh, I did have my son a week later, and they didn't have to start doing chemo while I was pregnant. Well, that's um, good. The timing worked out that way. But, of course, I could not uh, breastfeed my son because I was uh, getting chemo, which, you know, is fine. He's healthy. He's great. It, it, it was okay to give him formula, but what it, it was one of the many things that I, one of the losses I felt at that time, you know, my right. midwife prepared me once I got diagnosed, you know, there are a lot of things you're going to have to say goodbye to, a lot of I, um, dreams or, or plans you had that won't happen now, and that you just Why have to grieve those losses. That? Why do people still say that? <laughs> well, is, it was, is it really just a cover your ass kind of They're thing? short-sighted. Yeah. I mean, like, why yeah. do they say that? Uh, so Emily, we, we, th- tonight's show is about you know. Um, you mean life. the phrase I'm just saying because they, to your point, they sort of put it in this sort of t- bad negative spin. Right. And, you know. They don't give you a chance it, to find it yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, the fact is, she, she had a baby. Um, yeah. Amazing. Great. Right. Exactly. Amazing. You know, she, yeah. I knew I was very lucky. Yeah. Yes. So I mean, the the we we can say this ad nauseum until the public finally comes around. I'm doubting they're ever going to come around. But the idea that when the doctor says. You know, you're cured, go home. It's not the end of the story. So can you Absolutely talk not. us through, like, your life after cancer? How did you reintegrate, let alone as a parent of a newborn married with another child? What was that life like for you and for can a I just say, years? And first of all, too, tell us about being, I mean, you're obviously cleared for another pregnancy. And tell us, uh, also talk us through your feelings about getting pregnant again, having gone through treatment, having gotten the cancer. Sure, absolutely. So I feel like, um, you know, I was so excited to finish treatment, and I thought, great, I'll I'll rebuild my life. But then I quickly realized it wasn't happening. Um, You know, there would be all kinds of reminders that cancer wasn't behind me. It was the aches and pains that I wondered if it meant, you know, if I carried the stroller up the subway stairs or if I had a metastasis in my bones. Um, Or I remember being at my dear friend's 35th birthday party. It was a big celebration. I felt I was sort of on the sidelines, quietly thinking, gosh, am I going to have a 35th birthday? Um, Or I'd be at the playground and think, I'm probably the only mother here who was bald a year ago. It just, there were so many ways in which it was still a part of my life and would sort of uh, shape my thoughts. And always, of course, there were the ongoing scans, the three-month checkups, um... And a lot of rides on the roller coaster of, oh, we found something, we have to biopsy. Oh, we see a, uh, something on this scan, we have to do it again. So I think it came as a surprise to me that when you finish treatment, like you said, Matt, the doctors don't say you're cured, go home. They say, let's wait and see how it goes for you. Maybe it'll come back, maybe it won't. They really can't give you much information to uh, ease the uncertainty and fear. Right. So... um well, they told me you're cured, go home. That was actually the line that they said to me. Ah, 
Well, no, my my doctor was like, well, wait for five years would be good, ten years would be really good. So that's a long time to learn to wait. Now go home. Yeah, they go home. Yeah, now <laughs> go home and figure that out on your own. Right. Um, and then you so, got pregnant. You got pregnant. How many years later? Well, you know, I did when I reached the two-year mark because my tumor had been aggressive. Reaching the two-year mark was a, a good thing. Um, my doctor did say, my oncologist did say, okay, you could think about getting pregnant again. At first, it would had been off the table. When I was diagnosed, I do remember when you know we brought it up with uh, uh, our doctors. They said, well, you'll be a good candidate for adoption. So we gave the infant car seat away. We gave the baby clothes away. We thought, okay, that that you know we had dreamed of having two children, but that. Uh, dream is gone now. We'll just be so happy and grateful we have one child. But when I did reach the two-year mark, my doctor said, you know, this is significant that you've hit this timeline, but also some new science was coming out. So I started doing a lot of research, and some new studies were coming out of Memorial Sloan Kettering that said um, a, a pregnancy after breast cancer did not appear to affect survival rates. Now, breast cancer is a hormone-sensitive disease, so were you, and flooding were your you, body... Sorry, were you ER positive? I negative. was not. Negative, I right. Was not. Okay. As many young women are, you know, yeah. I was negative. But still flooding your body with estrogen, you know, had previously made doctors nervous, and, and that's why they advised women not to get pregnant after breast cancer. But the science was changing, and they realized it didn't seem to make a difference. Um, and so after doing a lot of research and talking to folks at Memorial Sloan Kettering and Dana-Farber, um, I began to feel like, okay, maybe this is possible for me. Then my husband and I had to have that conversation, a really hard conversation, not the one I expected to have when we were deciding about the size of our family, which was if we have a second child and I get sick again and I die, can you raise two children on your own? You know, I think we had to go into it with our eyes open and know that that was a possibility. Um, And he said, you know, he would do whatever I wanted to do and that, you know, we could try to have this, you know, the family we had dreamed of. So then the question was, could I get pregnant? You know, chemo can make you infertile. Um, so it was, I, I took some tests to find out. It appeared that I was still ovulating, and lo and behold, several months later, I got pregnant. What year was um, this? Uh, my daughter was, I was just turned six. So 2005, 2000, yeah, 2005. Right, that was right before, like, Fertile Hope um, came out. Uh, with a lot of their science and the aggregated wisdom of like dozens of which is the organization yeah. describe Fertile Hope for folks. Fertile Hope um, is a national a program of Livestrong today, but they were founded in 2006 by Lindsay Norbeck, who was diagnosed with with tongue cancer and told she'd never have kids and went through horrible chemotherapy. And now has like, I think three kids now, but this organization brings together uh, uh, fertility experts in oncology. And rheumatology and and uh, gastroenterology, every, like every possible ology out there, around how chemotherapy and cancer, depending on where in your body it is, affects your fertility. Um, but they came out in 2006. But you said this is 2005. Yes. No. And it's great to get that research out there because what I was kind of trying to cobble it together, and it's so wonderful to have an organization that's dedicated to pulling it together for survivors, so that when they are making these decisions, it's available in one place. Because you know, there's so we make so many hard decisions, and right. often without enough knowledge. So it's it's great that they're filling in the gaps. So um, I was going to ask so, you the question. The, obviously, I was going to say, what was the hardest process as a survivor? And it sounds like it was the decision to have a second child. Yeah, it was, it was a major, you know, difficult decision to make. 
so hard, but, you know, so rewarding. I feel so lucky, one, that I could. And two, that my daughter came and, and is just healthy and wonderful. And the day she was born, I whispered in her ear, thank you for coming. And I still say that to her um, because I'm just, I feel like it's such a blessing and such a miracle. And um, And it felt also like a huge relief because finally my body was doing what it was supposed to and unbelievably you know to me i could even nurse her um the side where i got surgery and radiation never produced any milk but on the other side i had enough milk to to help her grow as my surgeon said that's why you have two if one doesn't work the other one does so you know even i feel like finally my breasts are doing what they're supposed to do so that was uh very wonderful um but i i I, I feel like it that you know my second child didn't come along in the way that I imagined but I I am so lucky she's here and I feel like after I've talked to a lot of survivors about the way they've become parents I think you know I for the, I think survivors don't have to give up their dream of becoming parents it may the way they become parents may not look like they'd had imagined before they got sick but whether it's through adoption or IVF or pregnancy after doing all the research uh, it's possible the donor eggs or yeah donor well, we eggs have, there are we, many ways i have personal friends uh jen and chad rackman right? friends of the organizations sure. for many many years now she had ovarian cancer six or seven years ago and obviously had a hysterectomy and everything was taken away uh they got their surrogate son uh two months ago oh yeah. that's that's great i mean they spent a year and a half on like their like a home equity or <laughs> something like that like I mean, it shouldn't cost that much to have a family because it was taken away from you for cancer, but you you hit the nail on the head. Like, you can still, you have the right to a family, you have the right to a life with dignity and equality after cancer, um, whether you planned it or not. Like you can Right, and it may look different from you than what you imagined. Right. But it feels great when you hold that child in your arms, no matter how it came to you. Yeah. So what role would you say, we're going to bring on um, the Sloan Kettering uh, ladies in in a few minutes. What role would you say that that the that um, St. Vincent's or any other cancer center did or didn't play specifically for you, and what could have been done better? Well, you know, St. Vincent's didn't have a young adult program. It would have been great if they did. But I, you know, being in New York, I I was aware of what was going on at Sloan Kettering, and they have a post treatment center, and right. they had a workshop. I learned, you know, after a while, they have a workshop for young survivors post-treatment, and that was phenomenal for me. So about two years after I finished treatment, um, I was still struggling with how cancer affected my life, and so I went to one of their workshops. They lasted for like 10 weeks or something. And I remember so clearly walking into the room, looking around at everybody and thinking, I can't believe they all had cancer. They look so normal. I still thought there was something freakish about getting cancer as a young person, but here were all these young faces gathered in one room, and it felt so great to be with them and to talk with them because we all spoke the same language. So I feel like, you know, Memorial Sloan Kettering was making that available to people in New York. I wish St. Vincent, I wish every hospital, every cancer treatment center in um, New York or every other major community was doing the same thing. Um, But at least it's a model to begin with. Well, on that note, we're going to put you on hold, uh, hit up the news here, and we'll bring you back in a few minutes, okay? Great. Thank you. Emily Cousins, everybody. All right, let's get to the news here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am.
Okay, during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announced to our listeners a whole bunch of newsworthy programs, events, and services that we don't want you missing out on. They're all free, and they're all just for young adults affected by cancer. What kind of things? Well, things like conferences, happy hours, retreats, kayaking, mountain climbing trips, finance webinars, college scholarships, bar crawls, concerts, tweet-ups, support groups, and more. If you have something coming up that you'd like us to spread the word about during this part of the show, send us an email to info at stupidcancer.com. That's info at stupidcancer.com. All right, everybody, head on over to events.stupidcancer.com, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Stay in the loop because something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we don't want you missing out. What's going on, Kenny? We have a ton of stuff going on, Lisa. Thank you for asking. You're quite Saturday, welcome. Saturday, May 12th, we have a Seattle Metro picnic. Followed by a week from tonight is a karaoke meetup in New York City. Uh, Thursday, May 17th, we spark Young Adult Group out in Los Angeles. Saturday, May 19th, into Sunday, May 20th, there is both the Drumstrong 2012 down in the Triangle and the Beautiful People's Club fundraiser for Stupid Cancer happening live on the Internet and all over your gaming consoles. And that will wrap up our event. Actually, the Ungala. Oh, and the Ungala. Well, we've happening. got the Ungala coming up in our That's news true. segment. That's true. It will be coming up in our news segment following this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll get to the Ungala. That's a really good news yeah. voice, Kenny. I thank you, Matthew. <laughs> and back to you, Matthew. Presenting the Cancer Card, brought to you by the Looney Tunes at Stupid Cancer. Yes, it's an actual plastic credit card and accompanying keychain fob because it's time to cash in all those pity chips and nook your diagnosis for all it's worth. Why? Because why not? Play your cancer card. You'll be glad you did. After all, you've earned it. Survivor's Rule, $14.99 for a 10-pack order today. And send us your pictures. Playthecard.org. All right, I'm going to skip over right here to the Ungala. What you and Matt, what you and... What Kenny and Matthew were talking about, it's time to start the drumbeat for the 6th Annual Stupid Cancer Ungala, being held right here in New York City, June 7th at the Taj Lounge in Chelsea. $75 open bar, $25 cash bar. Attention tri-state area, that would be New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Come one, come all for our epic club night of dancing, raffles, and the raw power of the Stupid Cancer movement. Visit stupidcancerungala.com. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. We skipped the forums. That's okay. okay. Go to the stupidcancerforums.com. That's right. 2,500 members. Stupidcancerforums.com. People Chat about, talking about stuff. Chat about it, everything and anything you, your heart desires. Exactly. All right. Barbara Golby? Yeah, you can do Barbara. I'll do Penny. All right. Barbara Golby is a clinical social worker at Resources for Life After Cancer, a patient support and education program at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center right here in Manhattan. She's worked for 14 years with individuals and families, helping them manage the stress of living with a serious medical illness. Currently, her work focuses on cancer survivorship, where she develops programs and provides support to patients and families around the unexpectedly difficult transition to life after treatment. She earned her master's in social work from Smith College in Massachusetts. That's a beautiful campus, by the way. I would like to I would like to start it over again and go there. Anyway, and holds a master's in child and family studies from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. I haven't been there, but I've heard that's lovely as well. I've been to Madison. That's Bar- it's a nice town. To, to the campus? No, just to Madison. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway. It's like the same thing. Okay. <laughs> the same thing. Returning champion Penny Damascus currently <laughs> runs Resources for Life After Cancer, a counseling support program for adult cancer survivors at Memorial Sloan Kettering. 
And uh, in addition, she currently serves on the medical advisory board of First Descent, our friends at First Descent, an outdoor adventure program for young adults with cancer. Please welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, Penny Damascus and, and Barbara Goldie. There we go. Big applause. Ladies. Welcome. Hi. Hello. Good evening. And uh, let's bring Emily back on because we know she wanted to contribute to this. How are you guys doing? Good. Great. How Penny, are you? I haven't spoken to you in a long time. How, how, what's going on over there? <laughs> over where? <laughs> well, you're working at like Ford now, aren't you? Ford, that's right. Yeah. That's right. We're making Fiat. <laughs> yes, very nice. Um, actually, I was going to ask you, um, last time you were on the show, you had just written a book. Oh, right. With Paige. How's that book doing? Oh, boy. Um, I think pretty well. We got a little royalty check recently, so oh. people are hopefully enjoying it. And what's the name of the book? Useful. What? What's the name of the book for the listeners? Oh, that's a. Um, I think it's called A Hundred Questions About Life After Cancer. Yeah, yeah, that's it's it. It's part of the Hundred Questions series. Um, covers a lot of different topics. So it's a great, great book. Actually, it's a terrific resource. I know Penny won't, Penny won't toot her own horn, but uh, <laughs> I will tell you that it is. Very nice. Now you guys work at Sloan Kettering, one of the greatest cancer centers in the country. Says me, but it's also true. Um, I was cured there. Um, and uh, God knows how many millions of people have been treated there over the years. So um, we're here to talk about life after cancer and the idea of a hospital giving a rat's ass about you when you're done with treatment mm-hmm. was a legend, you know, it was like a myth 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I guess we'll, we'll start with Penny, what do you think tipped that? Why did that start to change? And how has Sloan sort of ridden the wave to be one of the preeminent uh, places to get treated these days? Well, a couple of things. I think um, at Sloan Kettering, there, the uh, resources for life after cancer, which used to be called the Post-Treatment Resource Program, ha- has been in existence since 1988. So um, so very uh, long time ago, well in advance of, of um, uh, many other centers, the uh, Sloan Kettering was uh, seeing so many people, the psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, social workers were um, encountering people once they'd finished with treatment and found that they uh, were experiencing anxiety, trepidation, fear of recurrence, all the stuff that we know now that's, that, um, that people are, have been telling us about. And so they started a program many, many years ago so we were kind of the only um game in not only town but I think in the in the country for a long while and that's all to say that that's fine but so what you know so we were helping uh, a small amount of people um I think what really changed was the just the um sheer volume of uh survivors and people no longer feeling satisfied with um the answer to why am I, you know, feeling so badly? Well, how can I feel better? And, peop- and people in the medical community and others would say, look, you should be glad you're alive. It's okay. You know, just go back to your life. And that wasn't enough. So I think um, people, because uh, survivors were asking for better services, for better follow-up, um, phys- you know, in the physical realm, in the emotional realm, um, and they weren't just settling anymore for um for just um surviving after cancer. So 
I think that that was a kind of a groundswell, and then um, and then I do think the Lance Armstrong Foundation and National Cancer Institute, American Cancer Society, and other organizations really began to um, provide resources, financial resources uh, for research, for on a programmatic level, um, that really helped to um, to provide services to an, a you know wide array of of people and, and populations. So, and tell us about and in terms of young adults, were you treating yeah. a lot of young adults at the get go, or did that population sort of grow as they really sought out a community? How did they? How well, did they always fit a, in? At a place um, as large as our center, we see a larger we see a, a larger per, um, percentage of whatever the slice of the cancer population is. So, the answer is yes. That we always saw. Um, uh, uh, more young adults than say other smaller centers because of our the ratio, um, and then um, I don't know somewhere around ten or more years ago um, we started a um, young adult survivorship program, which consisted of uh, educational programs. We always do uh, counseling um, and one-to-one counseling, and then the uh, support group that Emily referred to. So we repeat that, you know, we repeat those groups on a regular basis. Um, They're open to, the the educational programs are open to the community and the others are uh, more for the MSK populations just because we have to chart on them and other stuff. But um, so, yeah, we we actually, I think, had been providing services um, probably in advance of, of other organizations, but then other people, you know, started, um, I think Life Lab started, which was a, a wonderful writing The Life um, Lab, oh, rest in peace, Jody Sachs. That was an extraordinary mm-hmm. program. That was a great program, and um, and I do think um, uh, there were, like, one-off programs at, like, St. Vincent's, NYU, um, you know, the, the major cancer centers, and, of course, Cancer Care and other places, so... Is the uh, question for, I guess, question for either one of you, maybe mm-hmm. Barbara, um, is the resources for life after cancer program uh, best practices? Is it mandatory that that the patients are made aware of it at least? Because uh, do, do you find patients not knowing it existed but wishing they were told about it? Well, uh, you, you know, I think that um, that everybody wants to, to know about it. I think we... We um, there are lots of different ways that we let people know about the program. Um, where all all of the social workers and the staff in the hospital know about the program, and we're we're always talking to our especially the young adult patients about all the different um, events and groups that are going on in the hospital. So uh, we 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 have we get information about. Um, we know about all the patients who are finishing up with treatment, and and they um, get our calendar, um, which has all the information about all the young adult programs that are going on. So, you know, it's always a, a struggle to 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 think about how how to best reach people. But you know, I think I, I think the information about um, what's going on at Resources for Life After Cancer for Young Adults is, is circulating around the hospital. There are also now, um, and I think this is happening more throughout the country, 
there are uh, we have survivorship clinics uh, for specific disease sites, and in those clinics, people will um, that's where they they get their follow up. Um, and they'll learn uh, about our program through the clinic, as Barbara said, like through um, our calendar and also other written information and materials. Um, but also we've been, um, the, through the Survivorship Center, been trying to um, really formalize the, the, informa- the um, notification process about not only our program, but all the other great um, programs that are offered throughout the center that will benefit survivors, like um, programs at integrative medicine, um, at the uh, counseling center, and our program as well. So uh, really try and, and formalize that as much as possible. And people, we think we do a good job. We try and get, <laughs> get the information to as many people as possible, but we always hear about someone saying, why didn't I know yeah. about that program? Yeah, and, and it's hard. you know, it's, it's hard. Maybe you guys could tell us why. It, you know, sometimes it's it's hard to take in the the information. You know, everyone comes to it at their own time and pace. So, I think that's probably a good point too. I mean, for the individual, when can you when can you make the you know how much can you sort of bite off at at any right. particular time? Um, and yeah. and so, how do you with the young adult community? Do you find that they come in largely with parents, with partners, on their own, issues between families that can't sort of cope with this situation? I mean, I imagine it's all of the above, but can you just kind of say generally, you know, in broad strokes what you tend to see uh, more of? Sure. I think, um, I mean, I think that question taps into a, you know, a much... And this is Barbara. We should identify, right? Yeah, 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 this is Barbara. So I was saying I think that that question taps into even a, a bigger issue about where young adults are at in their lives when they get a cancer diagnosis um, and who their support systems are. Um, I mean, most people, if they have a support system when they get a cancer diagnosis, they, um, they, the preference is to come to the doctor with somebody in that support system. So for the young adult, who is their support system? Um, and, you know, if they're not... If they're not partnered, they're you know they're at a point in their lives, young adults, and we're you know we're talking about young adults, usually folks in their 20s and 30s, um, who may or may not be partnered. And if they've already left home, then they're you know in a position of of having to go back home and say, okay, mom and dad. Um, it, they may or may not decide to say, okay, I, you know I've got this big appointment coming up. It would be great if I could get some support. And so I think. Uh, I think it definitely does vary. Of course it varies. Um, I think we do see a lot of young adults coming in with family members. And that, you know, opens up a whole a whole other issue for them around how then to negotiate that, what's that like for them. Um, to at a point in your life again when you're when you're you know, wanting to be on your own, you you're you're starting a family of your own, but suddenly you find yourself back with your parents in this in a very, very vulnerable position. Yeah. Um, so then you have to kind of figure out how to negotiate that, and it's there are all, all kinds of challenges around that. Yes, uh, this is Emily, and I, I remember when I, right after I got diagnosed, there was that sort of awkward negotiation about, well, my father wanted to come and support me at the doctor's appointments, but I really wanted my husband of, you know, two mm-hmm. years to right. come. So right. uh, I was kind of in that gray area. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized I wanted my family's support, but not at the doctor's visits. Right. You wanted to have your personal life and keep that separate from maybe your family's life. Right. 
Right. So then, you, you know, you're worrying, you know, and a lot of folks are worrying about family members and feelings, and it's really a time where you have to say, you know what, I have to do, I have to do what's right for me and what's best for me, but you also have to remember that, that the cancer is, um, is impacting everybody in the family. So, so, you know, as with everything else, um, and if you're under 18, it becomes much more complicated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's not static. I mean, sometimes people do rely on their parents while they're undergoing treatment or other family members. And then at other times, maybe in, in typically in the post-treatment era or, t- or uh, time, um, they don't want, need, need their parents as much as they had before. So, so it is. it really changes all the time, and that really... We we um, try and help people as much as possible, as Barbara said. Negotiate that. Those well, you have to learn to say to your parents, "This is my appointment, and I'm sorry, but I can right. take care of my health now." Right, right, well, right. What would you? We you know we talk a lot about, and we can talk more about this. A, a lot of the issues around young adults' fertilities, and as we're talking about families here, um, is there? <laughs> I'm just going to put it this way: Is there a sort of magic magic bullet, so to speak, or uh, in terms of how you address? Fear. I mean, just that basic feeling of fear. I mean, I remember for myself, I'm a mm-hmm. breast cancer survivor. I remember, you know, my family who was incredibly supportive for me, trying to do everyday things with me in life, like take me shopping. And, you know, I remember standing on a street and just thinking, I might pass out right now. You know, this is all mm-hmm. seems completely irrelevant to me right now. I can't walk into a store and think about buying a shirt. I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I, I have cancer. I'm going through chemotherapy. I don't know if I'll be alive to wear this in a year. Mm-hmm. And just almost feeling like I was going to black out on the street and thinking, like, how can I go through these? Because I was just so incredibly gripped with fear in the moment. Mm-hmm. When somebody walks in with something like that, how, how do you address that or begin to address it? Yeah. They don't. Um, they just send them out. <laughs> yeah. Here's a pill. Here's a value. Go buy the shirt. Here's a chemotherapy treatment. We'll see you next exactly. week. Right. Yeah. Uh, we give them a nice, comfortable blanket too. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, first, just I think there are lots of different things that that can be done. But first, to just say and acknowledge that the fear is is real, and that to an, just to answer your question directly, is there a magic is there a magic pill or a magic wand or a magic bullet? I think the answer is no. Um, and and to to you know to um ignore it or deny it or to you know to try to to push it away i think would be you know is really denying yourself your feelings of of course there's the bigger question of how do you function you want to be able to function while right. you're going for this through this you don't want to become paralyzed um so, so I mean, I think there are there are a lot of things that you have to think about. I think you have to really think about what what the fear is first of all. Um, but first, let me take a step step back. And I think there, just to, simply speaking, there are there are actually ways that you can help yourself to relax. There are exercises that you can use, and I know that's those are the it's far from simple to do these things, um, but they can actually be really helpful if they're practiced. Um, 
ways of, you know, ways kind of mindfulness meditation kinds of things. Um, Robin, let me jump in for a second here because I wanted to just ask Emily a question. Emily is embodying everything tonight because she is an advocate. She volunteers for us. She's been to Sloan County Young Program, and she's a survivor. So (laughs) I would all the bases. All yeah, and and she's um, a rabbi, and (laughs) and she owns uh, Macy's, and she drives a Ferrari. Okay, one stop shopping. Exactly. So. Emily, what do you think the role, because I mentioned Penny's on the board of First Ascent, and I love Brad Ludden, the founder of First Ascent, one of the country's preeminent young adult cancer uh, camp retreat excursion, uh, kayaking, mountain climbing, river rafting, trip, uh, nonprofit. Um, What do you think the role of advocacy groups and direct patient service programs that we do or that First Ascent does or maybe, you know, Young Survivor Coalition, what's our role? Um, with respect to that patient when they're either in the hospital or out of the hospital, uh, what's our relationship with the cancer center in that process? Emily, start, and we'll go to Penny and then Barbara. Well, I think first and foremost is to um, let young survivors know that all of those organizations exist because I think the single most important thing you the, you need in those moments to, is to know you're not alone. And learning that all these opportunities and networks are there is a huge help. Um, And then I think, so it's reaching out to survivors, but it's also reaching out within the hospital so that oncologists and uh, surgeons and the whole medical team also know that these resources exist and that there are certain issues that young adults face. So I guess it's, you know, positioning yourself so you can reach out to young survivors but also reach within the hospitals. Um, and make sure that oncologists and surgeons are telling survivors about this, but also saying, yes, you should preserve your fertility, or yes, you should think about this because in five years or 10 years or 20 years, this treatment today may give you a side effect later, and you need to think about that long term. Well, or before Penny answers, let me just, with respect to Emily's answer, do you feel it's fair to place that kind of a burden, or do you not see it as a burden, because obviously you want to help the patient as much as you can, to have that, that bulk of resource literacy at your fingertips to know that this inpatient or this recurring coming outpatient, you know, um, needs to know about these 40 things at once? For Penny. Oh, for me. Um, look, I think that we can we can try and do that, offer people as much information as possible, but um, people are only going to take in what they're able to take in and what they what they're receptive to. So, while someone might at some point want to be in, involved in a support group, um, we can offer and offer and offer that, but they may only respond to a first sense, you know flyer or something because being in their bodies and being out in the world um in the outside world and and um you know being with a group of other survivors in a in a physical way is really what's going to help them with that fear that we were talking about before right so i think that the key is to just try and offer as many of the services um and resources that are out there that are that really run the the emotional and practical gamut, and um, that um, a, a one individual or groups of individuals can access, you know, depending on on their stamina, their focus, what their needs are uh, at a particular time. Um, the the um, 
we it's great. I think Emily's right. I think that um the the staff that work in cancer centers but also, you know, in the community um centers and and um areas really need to know about the programs that are out there, but we but oftentimes people are so busy that they they kind of forget. So we keep having to remind people as well, our own staff, our own colleagues about the programs that are out there. Right. Um so it's a it's a constant replenishment um, because our brains can only, I think, retain a a certain amount anyway. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, Kenny can only send you enough emails about karaoke. Right, right, (laughs) exactly. And then then you also, I mean, we all do this. We block it out, too. I mean, if he sends too many, there's some magic saturation point. We have to know what's, you know, when's just enough. Um... And we should mention also um, that you all offer, uh, you know, a wide range of services. I mean, I'm on your website now, art therapy, mm-hmm. canine therapy, of course, for to help relieve stress and, and pain for inpatients, um, to a writing program, which mm-hmm. Emily's a writer, and we did, as we were mentioning earlier on the show before you guys came on, we did, a, uh, Emily and I, a writing workshop at our OMG Summit. So um, yeah. So great. I think that's what that, yeah that's that's kind of what Penny was mentioning before. I mean I'm just thinking about what we've got going on right now. So everything from the writing workshop to um, to the to the to the weekend introduction to first descents um, <laughs> to our dating and disclosure um, evening workshop to the uh, the traditional support group. Um, so those are four different ways that people can kind of come together. Um, to meet other young adults, but using very different parts of their uh, parts of their body or, part, or you know, diff- very different experiences. <laughs> right. So, how much do I have to bribe you to put the OMG Summit on that list? <laughs> um, you know, you just ha- we tell people certainly we tell people about it, um, but we can we can talk offline about how to. I was just um, kidding anyway, but we're doing a, a mini summit in New York yeah. on September 15th, so I'll, I will yeah. email you offline about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we definitely, we tell all our Yeah, young our patients about are, are you yeah. know, all the folks that we talk to are, are, they know through us at least that it's going on. And we have a survivorship day coming up um, in June, on uh, June 13th, and in that survivorship it's not a, a day; it's a nighttime thing. We have a, speci- a room specifically for young adults. So, um, I don't know, Matthew, that's if you're going to come right. to that, but it, that that that's a that's another opportunity for us to um, just disseminate resources, information. Yeah, send me the information. I don't have it right now. Okay, very good. We should also mention, speaking of fear, I like this scanxiety managing right. the, yes. ma- managing right. the fear of a follow up visit. I mean, all of us know that. I, yeah. I'm, you know, 17 years out. I still say my prayers before yeah. every right. scan. Really huge point of anxiety. That and that that program came specifically out of you know patient um, survivor request. I would imagine. Yeah, It's a huge issue. I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, you know. I I did found for myself not even when I was getting scanned in the throes of it. Again, talking about that fear, um, trying to desperately come up with ways. I mean, I would say chance out loud, sort of try to be a one-woman pep rally, almost like you know, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, you know, I'm healthy, I'm strong. I used to just say that out loud, anything to try to, you know, Mm -hmm. get through it. So I imagine there's all kinds. You know, people are constantly looking for ways to, to overcome those. 
And do you find too yeah. that that people, you know, I think when you're going through, when you're first diagnosed and you're being proactive because you're having the surgeries and you're getting the chemo and all the drugs, but then the emotional fallout will often come years later when mm-hmm. you just think, am I this ticking time bomb? And, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're back to your life and you're working, but somehow I think that you might even be almost more emotional because then you can really sit and reflect back on oh, everything yeah. that you've been through. Yeah, not, not years later. I mean, you know, not... It, Hours for, later. For, for, yeah, for lots of people. I mean, like, everybody's different, but for... For lots of people, it happens um, not long after. Sometimes it happens, you know, when you're walking out the door after your last chemotherapy treatment. You, you know, you right. just said goodbye to the nurses, and you realize, oh, gosh, what? When am I going to see them again? Right. Um, mm-hmm. Only the last day of treatment is always the worst. That's what they mm-hmm. say. Not yeah. because of physical, but emotionally, you walk, you you have your anchor for how many weeks or days right. or whatever, and then boom, the cord's cut. No. But the and hardest scrutiny. thing about that is you don't you don't nobody tells you that that's going to happen. You're, right. Everybody you expect and everybody's it's been built up um, so that it's supposed to be the most joyous day and and then you're going to go home and there's going to be a big celebration for you and you're in the mood for anything but celebrating. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a question, uh, Dr. Charles Sklar, our friend Chuck, sure. uh, runs the long term. Uh, is it still called the Long Term Post Treatment Center that he's in charge of, or do they rename that too? I think it's a long-term follow-up clinic. Right, long-term follow-up yeah, clinic. Yeah, and Dr. Kevin Effinger. And as soon as Emily. he and, and Dr. Kevin Effinger came on board, I went to go see them because I wanted to get, a, 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 as a, I think it was a 10 years out at that point, I wanted to see what they were doing for patients because it, it gave me a better understanding as to what I could talk to other cancer centers about that Sloan was doing. And I got a report card mm-hmm. on here's the treatment that I had, Here's what I can expect to deal with. Here's the recommendations of different doctors I should go see about different possible issues. And basically, does that help you do your job better? Do you encourage patients to enroll with that? Well, I think the um, that's becoming more standard um, in cancer centers to give patients, uh, survivors, um, a kind of um, a follow-up. I guess a report card is a nice way of of a nice way of referring to it. Um, and then that way, if people move and go to other parts of the country or the world, they have this very concise and accurate record about the kind of treatment that they had, when they had it, and all of the particulars that they can bring with them. Um, I think it really helps, certainly it helps the medical team, right? Uh, but it really helps the individual. Because yes, I, that sounds like a great model because I've moved twice since treatment, <laughs> and I right. lug around this big, thick file. And right. uh, you know, it would just be so helpful for me setting up my new team to have that concise package of information. I think there is a um, um, like an example of it on the website in the survivor survivorship center on the MSKCC website of um, just a. Um, uh you know with with all of the the all of the um you know the history various mm-hmm. uh scans and treatments and all of that mm-hmm. listed out part of the, part of the reason that 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 this has has developed and that this has come out of the survivorship movement is is because a lot of the a lot of the the doctors out there who are oncologists who haven't treated can- cancer patients just your 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 right. general practitioner your internist 
may not necessarily know the kinds of things to look for after right. treatment or any kinds of complications that may come up or long or late effects meaning effects, you know, uh, things that happen um, after a delay after treatment, they may not know that it might be connected to the treatment that you got from your cancer. And this is one way of, of, there's a real movement toward educating um, the doctors outside of the oncology center around how to take care of folks who've had cancer. And I think that's especially relevant for young survivors, Mm -hmm. you know, because, um, one they may not expe- you know may not encounter so many young survivors and then we're living yes. longer and you know or may experience a whole range of effects o- over time right and it's helpful Absolutely. to connect the dots it's helpful to have all our various practitioners general doc you know general internists or gynecologists or whatever to connect all the dots and, and it makes it yeah Oh, I'm sorry. And uh, Barbara and Penny, I was just going to say and how much contact do you have actually with the oncologists in terms of their uh, awareness in bedside manner, and or if not to you guys, where does that all stand in terms of educating them more in terms of their psychologically dealing with patients? Oh, we work very closely with the oncologists, with the whole team. Um, so there are there are social workers um, throughout the hospital. Uh, you know, as as most people know. Um, who are assigned to the different doctors, both inpatient and outpatient, um, and you know, there's there's both informal and formal um, ongoing communication um, among all the team members about what's going on with each patient, and you know, around that, uh, and both formal and informal talk about also how what what the patient's emotional needs are and. Um, when when social workers um, gather information um, about what might be going on for a particular young adult patient, um, you know, in terms of in terms of how they're coping emotionally or, or family dynamics, it's 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 shared with the team, and we're always talking about how um, how best to support the patient, um, what the do- including what what the patient might need from the doctor. So I think there's ongoing communication, open communication about that. It's very much a team kind of approach. Have you both found um, that uh, the professional oncology societies for social workers have adopted a sort of a young adult conversation, uh, whether it's AOSW or APOSW? Yeah, I mean, you mean in terms of uh, an awareness and and education and training? Yeah, like messaging, Uh, community, you know, um, leadership around best practices and, you know, wisdom. Absolutely. I think it's it's always a point of um, interest. And, I mean, we're having a a conference, AOSW is having a conference soon, and we always highlight um, young adult survivors, um, either through our our um, the talks that happen or with our keynote speakers. I think Doug Oman is going to be speaking. He's Good. one of our keynotes. Yeah. Good. So definitely, it's such a it's such an area of interest. I mean, it's it's um, because you know there it, because historically young adults have been. I mean, listen to Emily's story is a good example. You know, oh, you're fine. You know, pe- people are underdiagnosed, um, uh, missed. It's it's oh it's they're told it's absolutely nothing um because it's not expected that um cancer will be found in in um young people it's cancer is a, is a disease of the elderly 
um, and we know that that's not true now. And so social workers, of course, and um, the uh, psychosocial members of the team are, are very much in tune with this because we hear people's stories and experiences and help people to to um, to make sense of it. From MS from Memorial alone, we've had um, a social worker over the uh, over the past couple of years, at least one social worker presenting yeah. on on um, on a young adult issue at 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 um, the social work oncology conference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we ha- I'm sorry, we we have to wrap pretty soon, but I just want to get in one last question before we go um, for for either one of you, Barbara or Penny. What do you tell patients generally when, you know, there's some people that really step up to the plate and some people that surprise you when you're diagnosed and others that retreat and some Mm -hmm. that you think who will really be there for you. Even close family members can completely retreat because they can't deal. How do you you begin to approach that um, with with the patients that you you see? So how do you help the patient when the patient is experiencing people in the lives who are close to them who... Um, who are disappointing them? Who are right. not? Who are not um, stepping up to the plate as as they had expected? Right. Good. It's a good question. I think it's I think it's really hard. I think, uh, you know, I hear young folks tell me all the time that there are people who disappointed them, who just couldn't couldn't be there for them because I think it. Um, and, and then there are folks who who were there for them that they never expected there to be um, them to be. Um, you know, I think the f- I, I think the first thing is is people have to understand what um, why people um, might might have a hard time. Um, you know, not that that's not that that's going to solve any solve anything, but I, I think it's helpful for people to understand that the reason why people retreat is because it. And, and I I tell people this all the time. It taps into their own fears. Um, either about their own health or about or about the patient themselves, somebody that they love very dearly, that's going through this, and it's you know that the fear is just too overwhelming for them to tolerate, and the only thing they can do is run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, think, Penny, did you want to? Well, I think it's yeah. also um, important to help people. The, the whole cancer experience, especially for young adults uh, in particular, can be very erasing. Uh, because it, people feel so out of sync with the rest of their uh, peers, and so they can that whole experience, the cancer experience, can feel like um, um, like it didn't happen in a way, and it's not reflected back uh, to them um, by their by their peers and their family members. And you know, as we know, so, uh, so many people just want to once the cancer uh, experience is over, then they want to move on because they don't want to uh, feel. That they're or or worry about their loved one um, having you know to experience cancer again. But what I think it's important to recognize that and also to figure out how to be visible. <laughs> so some people are just going to be lost causes, and you can't you know you you learn something about your relationship with them. But well, your others, goal can't be to please everybody. Yeah, and then others are how do you help people? I mean, we try and help people to articulate the the ways to 
um, connect with them and the ways that they have changed what they're think or you know tell people what they're thinking um how you know milestones every maybe a, a source of anxiety for people for cancer survivors but for everyone else they're celebrating birthdays and and uh births of babies and other things so so I really I think it's important to help people to um to um become more visible to become more present uh to their peers and to their loved ones because um the uh the silencing themselves I, I think could be can be very uh disappointing and can contribute to um depression and anger and, and all kinds of maladaptive ways of coping. So yep. and I, I mean, one way I thought of it was like you have to be a walking PSA. You have to right. educate the people in your life. Right. Because they are coming to this without a extensive background in how to help young adults through cancer. Um, so you, maybe you wish you didn't have to, but you are right. in a position to where you do need to educate your friends and loved ones. So on top of going through everything that you're going through, you also yeah. have to educate the people that can't, right. can't deal with it. I mean, you can choose to or not to, and I think I think you do. I think there you yeah. you don't always. I mean, it's it's a drag to always have to remind people. You know, yes, in fact, this yeah. is this happened, and and this is what I'm feeling now. But I think it's important to do it sometimes, if only to to um, feel the pre- your presence. Um, and to have that be acknowledged, I think that that's important. That's right. If only to to remind yourself that yeah. that there's nothing wrong with you that that you had cancer. I yeah. think that this experience in and of itself can can you know potentially you know leave you feeling feeling bad, like there's something wrong with you, and it, you know you have to you have to you have to be reminding yourself, um, let alone everybody else, that that's not the case. That that just because you had cancer doesn't mean that you can't go on living, you know, living a full life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we have to wrap the show, but I think at the end of the day, the takeaway from this program about life after cancer is that it's so much better on average for the inpatient to be navigated towards a better quality of life than it ever has been before. Mm-hmm. And That's the so- emergence of long-term follow-up clinics, and specifically young adult survivorship clinics, inpatient young adult groups, and offline organizations like ours, First Descent. Um, We're not quite where we'd like to be, but we're definitely better off than we were a few years ago. So uh, with that said, you guys have been great. We love talking about progress. This is exactly what this show has been about. So uh, I can't thank you enough, Barbara and uh, Penny. I will send you a specific email about the, uh, we have the, uh, the 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 karaoke's and the um, the boot camp in uh, New York City. We'd love to have you guys directly involved. So okay, great. great. So thanks, thanks to the three of you for an amazing conversation and Thank have a great you. week. Thank Bye. you. Thanks, Emily. Penny okay, Damascus. Okay. Bye. Robert Colby and, and Emily Cousins. All righty. Thank you. All right. I, I don't think we mentioned during Emily in the first sequence. She writes for the Stupid Cancer blog. Yes, she does. In the intro, so. we did. Yes. Oh, we but did. Thank you for that again. Well, I will reiterate. We can't no. say it enough. Oh, that was time. when she lived in the uh, in, in Arizona Navajo, too, in right? The Navajo Nation, yes. <laughs> All right, good show. And here we go. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. 
That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, everybody, that is tonight's show, our 224th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. I'd like to thank Kenny Kane, James Manning, and Matt Beckett for being here in the studio, and our guests, Emily Cousins, Barbara Goldie, and Penny Damascus from Sloan Kettering. All right, everybody, join us next week. Hyundai Hope on Wheels will be the show Monday, May 14th with Zafar Brooks. He's Director of Corporate Social Responsibility at Hyundai Motor America, and he's a program director for something called Hyundai Hope on Wheels. We'll hear all about that. And our chairman of the board here at Stupid Cancer, medical director of the Hyundai Cancer Institute, Dr. Leonard Sender. He's also the division chief of pediatric oncology at CHOC. That's the Children's Hospital in Orange County. And he's the board chair, as I mentioned, of Stupid Cancer. And in the Survivor Spotlight next week, C.J. George, pediatric cancer survivor, stage 3, ALL. And he's the National Youth Ambassador for this year's Hyundai Hope on Wheels. He's a very inspiring kid. He's like 12 or 13. Very amazing. Very cool. All right, folks, if you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free anytime on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.com or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com. Remember, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Lisa Bernhardt, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week. We'll see you back here next Monday.